In justicia tua libra me. If only some of our people, all of our people, could realize that in this psalm, David is telling us, in thee, O Lord, I trust. In thy righteousness, deliver me. If only everybody could understand these words, how much better they would understand God's righteousness. And what, dear brother, is God's righteousness? Well, exactly what scripture says, Father, that it delivers and does not merely judge rather an interesting interpretation of scripture. Did you learn that in Rome? Not that I recall, Father Pryor. From your studies of the church fathers? No. Your own? To the best of my knowledge, yes. There is only one proper interpretation of scripture, that which the church has established. What if scripture were in the hands of common man? for every potboy and swineherd to read in his own language and interpret for himself. What then? Why, then we might have more Christians, Father. Historically, whenever a church council was convened, it was for all intents and purposes, a trial. It's telling that even today, some denominations still call the gathering of elders, pastors, and bishops the court of the Lord Jesus, or synod, another word for court. If a court was called to try a new teaching, each side in the controversy was allowed to present their arguments, evidence, and witnesses. At the conclusion, a verdict was then rendered. And so it happened when the Arminian party started teaching things contrary to the confessions and accepted doctrine of the Dutch church, the church was forced by the controversy that ensued to put these new teachings on trial. The court or Synod of Dort was convened in November of 1618 to deal with the Arminian challenge. While the key points of disagreement were relatively simple, they had many complex implications that went to the very heart of the gospel. At its foundation was an ultimate question. How does fallen man come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Arminian party's first point became known as partial depravity or the wounded man theory. Although man is fallen, they insisted that his mind, will, and emotions were only wounded by the fall. Therefore, the human will is free and still self-controlled, having power to yield to the influence of the truth and the spirit, or to resist them and perish. The Synod of Dort responded to the contrary, articulating what has come to be known as total depravity, or the dead man theory. Simply stated, in the fall, Man didn't just become spiritually sick, he died. As a result, he is completely unable to do any ultimate good in the eyes of God, including believing the gospel. 
Since the fall of Adam, every person is conceived and born by their very nature spiritually dead and a slave to sin. Though we still have a will and are free to choose what we want to choose, we are not able to choose what is contrary to our nature. In the end, the will of fallen man can only embrace sin and its ultimate wages, death. But what total depravity means is that every faculty that we have is affected by the fall. Every faculty we have is predisposed to unholiness. Our mind, our will, our emotions, our, our memory, our conscience, all of these things are affected and impacted and are predisposed toward corruption and evil. It does not mean that man is as bad as he could be. Nor does it mean that every unregenerate man is equally bad. There are obviously some people who are worse than others. What it does mean is that the fall of Adam and original sin does impact every part of man's being, namely his mind, his heart, and his will. So does the Bible, the Word of God, teach that man is partially or totally depraved, spiritually wounded or spiritually dead? Any answer must take into full account the following sober assessments of man's inherent nature. In our fallenness, the Bible describes us as darkened in our understanding and carnally minded, at enmity with God and incapable of being subject to Him, haters of God and lovers of darkness, dead in our transgressions and sins and by nature children of wrath without the life of God in our souls slaves to our sinful nature, captive to a my-will-be-done ethic and epistemology, with hearts that are so twisted with our self-centeredness that out of them come evil thoughts, vulgar deeds, stealing, murder, unfaithfulness in marriage, greed, meanness, deceit, indecency, envy, insults, pride, and foolishness. We have turned everyone to his own way, that even the thoughts and imaginations of our hearts are evil continually from our youth. A wise man once observed that the Bible doesn't just contain theology or man's study of God. It's also the Lord's anthropology, God's analysis of man. And that analysis is well summed up by the Apostle Paul when he echoed the words of King David in the 14th Psalm. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we talk about free will a great deal, but the fact is man's will is bound by his own sinfulness. So there's only a certain range that he's going to be able to choose within. He's not able to choose all the best things, the highest things, the most godly things, because sin has bound his will. The bottom line, the Calvinists saw that the remonstrance was giving fallen man more credit than he deserved and attributing an ability that's simply not there. And they understood that how one viewed the fall, 
would be reflected in how one understood, believed, and preached the gospel. I think most Arminians mean by free will the power to initiate a relationship with God, to take that first step. Uh, it's even in one of the most popular hymns that it's used. It's used in Arminian churches. If you'll take the first step toward the Savior, my friend, you'll find his arms open wide. Well, I've heard preachers say, if you take the first step, God will take all the rest. So, can fallen man, who is spiritually dead, take any steps? Can he cry out for help? When a person is dead in trespasses and sin, I like to think of him not as a man who's fallen off the second floor with a slight concussion, uh, broken leg, and some fractured ribs, but he can call for help. But rather, he's like one who's fallen off the Sears building in Chicago, and he's splattered on the ground. So he doesn't need a little help. What he needs is life, and only God can give that, you see. You know, one of the things we must bring back into our approach to evangelism is to help the lost understand that they're walking corpses, that they are dead in their sins. And what brings that to light is the law. I, I know that we've moved away from the law a great deal in our modern church, but the fact is it's the law as applied to a human life that reveals the fact that that life is dead in their transgressions and sins. To help us further understand the implications of both of these positions, Consider the following lesson from two video series I did over the last 15 years. In 1989, I produced an expose on, quote, secular rock music entitled, Hell's Bells, The Dangers of Rock and Roll. This series was seen by tens of thousands of people around the world, and the Holy Spirit saw fit to use it as a tool to draw many thousands of people to Christ. In the last of the six parts of the series, as we were dialing in on the challenge to repent and believe the gospel, I used the following analogy that perfectly reflects the sick but still alive position of modern Arminianism. The biblical picture of man without God is much like this poor fellow right here. He's in critical condition, suffering from a sinful, wicked heart that has separated him from God, spiritually dead and unable to do even the least thing to help himself when his heart stops beating, he'll be launched into an eternity without hope. This person is in desperate need of help. Implicit in this analogy is a foundational principle of modern Arminianism, that fallen man, though desperately sick, is still alive and has the ability to choose Christ if he so desires. Over the intervening decade before we produced the update or sequel, my theology, like so many others, began to change. I don't want to in any way sound patronizing to those who love God and His Word and still believe that fallen men have the ability to choose God, but as I became more familiar with the Bible and the doctrines of grace, as I began to better understand the nature of the God I served, as well as the condition of man in his fallen state, I gradually became a convinced Calvinist. And so when it came time to remake the important point about the deceptions of pop music, the analogy took a significantly different slant. The biblical picture of man without God is much like this poor fellow right here, trapped in the coffin of his fallen nature and unable to do the least thing to help or redeem himself. While physically alive and brimming with potential from a human perspective, to an infinite and incomprehensibly holy God. Our sin, our innate drive to live life on our own terms, 
has cut us off from God and his eternal life. To put it bluntly, we are spiritually dead and only a heartbeat away from eternal judgment. The only way out of this black hole is to be born again, to have our sins blotted out through the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. There are two analogies that the scriptures use for someone who is dead in their trespasses. One is the analogy of the corpse. The other is the analogy of progressive corruption. In Romans 1, for instance, we see that someone who is dead in their trespasses can actually descend to deeper and deeper depths by giving themselves over to bestial or bestial impulses. As a result, we have to be careful to realize that just because a person is lost doesn't mean that they have descended to the depths of corruption that they could if just turned completely loose. Even for the non-believer, even for the non-Christian, there are ranges of hardening. There are variations in the condition of heart. And so even a person who's not given to God can become progressively hardened and progressively more wicked uh, based on what influences are operating in their lives. An unrepentant, unregenerate child of the devil can never choose good as far as God is concerned. Total depravity does not mean that the person cannot do anything good as man counts good. It does not mean he's as bad as he can be. It simply means that he has been affected totally in his being as a result of the fall. So he can never do anything good as far as God is concerned. As a matter of fact, the prophet uh, Isaiah in 64, 6 says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags in his sight. So if our righteousness is as filthy rags, then you know what everything else is from there. Pastor Bowie said it well. Fallen man can never choose what is good in the eyes of God. And yet the Arminians were teaching that unregenerate man, with help from God, could choose the greatest good, the gospel. Man, in their view, is the archetypal idiot savant, retaining an isle of genius that is fundamentally untouched by the fall. When presented with the choice between life and death, he is no longer a slave to sin. He is, in fact, free and possesses the ability to choose life. It's important at this point to discuss the difference between the words may and can. What grabbed me about total depravity as I was reading the scripture is that little word can. Can is a word of ability and may is a word of permission. And I am a stickler for making that distinction now, even with my children, because I want them to get right theology. It was because I confused those two words, I didn't get right theology for a long time. One of the passages that stands out very clearly in my mind that drove home to me the point that I could not choose good is what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44. No man can come except he's drawn by the Father. Prior to that time, it had always seemed to me that anybody can choose to come whenever they get ready. But then I found that no man can, and can is the word of ability, you see. The Bible makes it clear that every man, woman, and child should come to Christ. They have his permission. In fact, they're even commanded by God to repent and have faith in him. The problem, the dilemma really, is that they're dead, 
buried away in the coffin of sin. There's no spiritual life in them. They don't have the ability to see the kingdom of God, to repent and have faith. They simply can't do it. Every human being on earth has the freedom to believe in the gospel, but they don't have the ability. The fact is that sin has blinded their minds to the light of the gospel of Jesus. So let's apply this truth to the spiritual realm by asking the question. Given the opportunity to choose between good or evil, obedience or rebellion, God or Satan, eternal life with Jesus, or death in the pool of sin, what will fallen man always choose? If you said death to stay in the coffin of sin, according to the Bible, you're correct. Until God the Holy Spirit changes the disposition of my soul, I'll never have faith in Christ. I'll never embrace Him. I'll never decide for Him in any redemptive way. I'll never truly choose Him because my, my heart is still bound up in sin. As a result of these and many other passages, the men who sat for months at the Synod of Dort reaffirmed the biblical and historical teaching of total depravity. In section 3 and 4 of the Canons of Dort, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin, and without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. You may be saying, well, if that's true, how then did I come to know the Lord? How is it that anyone is saved? We will answer that question the same way Jesus did. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The Arminian party agreed that man fell in the Garden of Eden. They believed that this fall was not Adam's alone, but that it was carried down to all of his posterity by natural generation. So what was the point of contention? The Arminian doesn't deny the sinfulness of man, but what he does deny is the depth and the power of the sin in the life of the individual. The Arminians and the Calvinists disagreed over the scope of the fall as it related to the will of man. The Arminians, simply put, believed that man's will was wounded by the fall and that he still had the ability to choose the good over evil in the spiritual realm. The Calvinist, on the other hand, held that since the fall, the only thing unregenerate man could and would choose was inevitably corrupted by his will, motivated by self and evil. The next logical question then becomes, if fallen man can only choose evil, how could he ever choose the ultimate good, the gospel of the Lord Jesus? How can he ever be saved? People are not in their natural state searching for God. God's the one who seeks us out. Christ is the one who comes to seek and to save the lost. Before we deal with election in more depth, 
we must address one of the most misunderstood teachings of the modern era, what it means to be born again. It's kind of a deep subject. I don't really have all of the depths of my Christianity figured out. But the one thing that I do know that is God came and said to me that if I repented, that, uh, that I would be saved. And so that's what I did. Most modern evangelical Christians have been taught that as a sinner repents of his sin and puts his faith in God, he becomes born again. This is what the Arminian party was advocating and what the Calvinists rejected. How, they asked, can a dead man have faith? The modern church teaches that you have to have faith for to be born again. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus said in John 3. As a matter of fact, in response to the question, how can a man be born again? Jesus did not say, say repent and believe. He said it's like the wind and you don't know where it's going or where it's coming. In other words, he's saying that the new birth is something that you can program, you can determine. It happens and you experience it. Let's take a closer look at the Arminian view by way of the following analogy. no one is interested. If his target audience was simply sick and just needed some medicine, writing out a prescription would make perfect sense. But when the patient is dead, it becomes absurd on the face of it. I think one of the problems that evangelists perhaps have had is to see people not as being dead, but as being sick. You're sick in your sins and you need a little therapy or you need a little medicine and then you can get better. But scripture teaches that we are, are dead and what we need is a spiritual resurrection. God works this miracle on spiritually dead people who have neither the ability nor the desire to live for him. This is what the Bible, numerous church councils, and countless champions of the faith, some of whom we listed in part one, have taught that being born again is a monergistic work, the effort of God alone. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, there are three figures used to designate the new life in Christ. They are birth, creation, and resurrection. And in all of these three things, the one thing that they have in common is the fact that the person or that which is in the body is passive. You do nothing to be born. You can do nothing to be resurrected if you're dead. You can do nothing to be created if you're not existing, you see. And so it all means that the initiative must come from God's side not man's side. Dr. R.C. Sproul explains that Arminians have unconverted sinners who are dead in trespasses and sin, bringing themselves to life by choosing to be born again. 
Christ made it clear that dead people cannot choose anything, that the flesh profits nothing, and that a person must be born of the Spirit before he can even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. Man believes the gospel because he has been transformed by the Spirit of God. He is thus given the gift of faith, in which he exercises that faith in believing what God has said about Christ in the Scripture. He also responds in repentance and seeks forgiveness from God. Now if the Holy Spirit doesn't come down and give life and take those dry bones and knit them together, what's going to happen? Nothing. They're dead. Which is what all of us are spiritually. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. That, that, that ought to be enough to settle the matter. There is another misunderstanding many evangelicals have about being born again. They view it and being justified or saved as being the same thing. But in reality, they are two different terms that depict two related, but nonetheless distinct events. Being born again enables us to have faith in Christ, something we can never do while still dead in our trespasses and sins. Being born again is the first act, if you will, of God's grace. It makes us new creatures in Christ. And as new creatures, we are no longer haters of God. We are no longer at enmity with God. As the prophet Ezekiel explained, God removes our hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh. And with the scales now removed from our eyes, we see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves. And as a result, we repent and have faith in God and what He has done for us through the cross. Being born again must, of necessity, precede faith. So the question remains, how is a sinner born again so that he can have faith in Christ? Because of what God has done before the foundation of the world, He has elected an innumerable amount of people that will respond to the gospel. They will be His followers. They will become disciples of the Lord Jesus. He guarantees it. Here we come to an area of doctrine which ultimately colors our entire understanding of salvation. Many, if not most modern Christians, tend to either ignore or lightly skim over words like chosen, predestination, and election when they see them in their Bibles. The reason for this is simple. The biblical doctrine of election is, humanly speaking, counterintuitive, an offense to the natural human tendency to believe that we played a part in our own salvation. But the Bible declares this awesome truth of election often and without apology. We need to come to terms with it. For many are called, but few are chosen. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. We could go on reading scripture after scripture, declaring that we didn't find God. Instead, he found and saved us. As another example, consider the fact that many of the New Testament letters were specifically addressed to the elect. Also consider that the word most often translated church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, meaning the called out ones. The term comes from the same Greek root eklektos, the word we translate as the elect. So the terms church and the elect are roughly synonymous. The word beloved is another word that refers to the elect, though the passages in which it appears are too numerous to mention. Let's look at just one. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Another term God uses to refer to his elect children is sheep. In John 10:26, Jesus declared to the unbelieving Jews, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Note that Jesus did not say, because you did not believe, you're not my sheep. Instead, he declared the opposite. They did not believe because they were not members of his flock. The word because assigns the reason for their unbelief. They simply were not his sheep or his elect. His sheep will believe. Matthew Henry, who penned perhaps the most popular and enduring commentary on the Bible, explains the meaning of this passage. Ye, speaking to a group of Jews, are not designed to be my followers. Ye are not of those that were given me by my Father to be brought to grace and glory. Ye are not of the number of the elect, and your unbelief, if you persist in it, will be certain evidence that you are not. As stated earlier, many today either ignore or deny the concept of election. They see it as unfair or unjust. How could a loving God, they ask, choose to give mercy and grace to some and then withhold it from others? Well, before we dare to subject God and His Word to the bar of human conceptions of fairness, consider this. Nobody seems to have a problem that God called out Israel and set them apart and set His love upon them and distinguished them. And you can't argue that here, here's Moses, who's born under a death sentence, who's born to a slave, and here's the Pharaoh, who's born heir to the throne of the most, uh, most powerful kingdom the world has ever known. Now, God didn't give Moses everything he gave this baby Pharaoh, although eventually he did, of course. Then Pharaoh, or then Moses, of course, becomes, uh, is raised in Pharaoh's court. And then does God continue to treat them the same? No, God doesn't come in a bush to Pharaoh and say, hey, Pharaoh, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to take care of you and all your people, and I'm going to give you my law, and I'm going to place you in a land, and I'm going to give you uh, grace galore, and through you the nations will be blessed. No, God did that first to Abraham, and then later on through Moses. And again, nobody seems to have a problem with that. But now in the New Testament, supposedly, God can't set his covenantal love upon this person in a way that's distinct from how he does so with that person. And therefore, the difference has to be in the person. 
but God explicitly says in the scripture several times, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You know, as much as we need to be doing theology and need to be doing an apologetic for the things that we believe, we, we never need to lose the, the perspective that God's God and He can do what He wants to do. And who are we to question His ways and His sovereign choices? Where do you get the standard? Where do you stand to get a standard by which you measure God by, you see? He Himself is the standard. And He does what He pleases, only what He pleases. The, the truth is that God is God and He can do whatever He wants. His job description is to do whatever pleases Him. He, he, that's, that's how He makes decisions. That's how He conducts Himself according to His own good pleasure, as Scripture says. Now that's good news to the believer, but it's bad news to those who are rebelling against God. Given the theological climate of the time, the Arminian party had no choice but to deal with the doctrine of election. As we've seen, the remonstrance insisted that the individual's response to God's offer of salvation help spark their spiritual resurrection, their born-again experience. But at the same time, they acknowledge the clear biblical teaching that God chooses who will be saved. And so they devised a way to supposedly reconcile the obvious tension between these two concepts. According to the Arminian party's formulation, God looks down from the corridors of time and foresaw those who would choose him, and then ratified their choice by electing them. Therefore, election to the Arminians was conditional based upon man's proper reaction. Quoting again from the Articles of Faith of the National Association of Free Will Baptists, God determined from the beginning to save all who should comply with the conditions of salvation. Hence, by faith in Christ, men become his elect. This was, according to the Synod of Dort, pure Pelagianism. In their official denunciation of the remonstrance, they wrote, For this does away with all effective functioning of God's grace in our conversion and subjects the activity of Almighty God to the will of man. It is contrary to the apostles, who teach that we believe by virtue of the effective working of God's mighty strength, and that God fulfills the undeserved goodwill of this kindness and the work of faith in us with power, and likewise that His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we believe that our salvation is by grace, that even the faith that we have comes as a gift from God. There is nothing that we can lay claim to, nothing in which we can boast. Our salvation entirely comes from the Lord. Dr. J.I. Packer explains, the Arminians say, I owe my election to my faith. The Calvinist says, I owe my faith to my election. People are either elect or non-elect before they are born. There's nothing a person can do to get himself elected. It's not like God has voted for you and the devil has voted against you and now you make your election by voting one way or the other. The Arminian position is not really election, it's ratification. In the end, it's man's vote that decides the outcome. And while the Arminian may and likely will insist that the weight of God's elective power is infinitely greater than Satan's, that the ballot box has been radically stuffed in our favor, there remains no way to get around the final bottom line that one man with the devil's help can frustrate the vote and the desires of Almighty God. Most learned Arminians would draw on numerous passages to buttress their doctrine, 
but they claim their greatest proof text is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The word foreknew was understood by the Arminians to mean that God knew or saw beforehand which sinners would believe and that he then predestined them to salvation based upon this knowledge. Notice, however, that the text does not say that God knew something about particular individuals, that they would do this or that, or that he saw their actions, even though both statements are true. Rather, it states that God knew the individuals themselves. The word whom is the object of the verb, and the object denotes persons, not events or happenings. But before the beginning of time, the Bible says, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. The word foreknow does not mean foresee, it means to forelove. In Genesis 4.1, we're told that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Well, if all he did was intellectually foresee uh, Eve, she never would have conceived. The point is, he made her the object of his loving affections and she conceived. And so in Romans 8, it says, whom he foreloved those whom he foreknew, those he predestined, whom he set his love upon, those whom he chose according to the good pleasure of his will. He determined that in time they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Romans 8 says those he foreknew he predestined to become sons of God. And of course the standard Arminian view is that to foreknow just means to foresee and just sort of know what's going to happen without really affecting it. But the word really means to forelove, kind of in an apprehended sense, that, that God is actively uh, drawing that person and actively turned towards that person, uh, not just for, for knowing in a distant sense, but in a relational sense. Addressing the elect nation of Israel in Amos 3.2, God declares, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Surely the Lord had knowledge of and can see all the actions of every family on the earth, but he knew or loved Israel in a special way and set his heart upon them alone. The Arminian attempt to redefine the doctrine of election failed. In contradistinction to the doctrine of conditional election, the confessions of the Dutch church taught what is called unconditional election. They believe that God elected certain individuals in Christ before the foundations of the world based upon Christ's sacrifice. His reason for selecting the ones he did was solely based upon his own goodwill and pleasure. He loved them even though they were just as deserving of his wrath as those he did not love. And those whom he elected to love, through the power and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, he causes them to be born again, whereby they willingly accept Christ. So what was the basis of God's electing one and not the other? That's a fascinating question. And I want to tell you, the Bible never answers it. It answers it in the negative. It tells you what are not the things that are the basis for your election. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you will see that Paul says, you see your calling, brethren. Now, he's talking about calling in the theological sense where the Holy Spirit calls us unto Christ for salvation. He's not talking about a calling as a musician or a preacher or something like that. You see your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty 
are called. Not many noble are called. Not many of the great people of this world are called. We don't have the time to look at all the verses that illuminate this doctrine. Perhaps the passage that most directly addresses it is found in the ninth chapter of Romans. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who called, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Paul gives us, as an illustration, two real flesh and blood Old Testament figures, Jacob and his older brother Esau. And to remove all ambiguity concerning the mind-blowing implications of this passage, Paul throws diplomacy out the window and cuts right to the bottom line. The reason for choosing one over the other is so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Election, in other words, is of God, by God, and through God. Nowhere is man given even a scintilla of responsibility for his election. Nowhere does man have any room to boast. Paul concludes this passage by echoing a verse from Malachi, and in his mouth it becomes one of the most controversial statements in the entire Bible. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Charles Spurgeon comments on this passage. Why did God love Jacob and hate Esau? I can tell you why God loves Jacob. It's sovereign grace. There was nothing in Jacob that could make God love him. There was everything about him that might have made God hate him as much as he did Esau, and a great deal more. But it was because God is infinitely gracious that he loved Jacob, and because he is sovereign in his dispensation of his grace, that he chose Jacob as an object of that love. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the base things of the world, the things that are nothing. These are the things that God has chosen, that no flesh may glory, glory in His sight. So the only reasons that we're told why anybody is chosen is because we are weak, foolish, and base, and don't amount to anything. Modern-day commentators, as well as the Arminian Remonstrants, attempted to soften the blow of this passage by saying that God loved Jacob more than he loved Esau, and therefore it really wasn't hate. They argue that the word translated hate means unloved or less loved, as if this really makes any difference. Again, quoting Charles Spurgeon. It's a terrible text, and I will be honest with it if I can. One man says the word hate doesn't mean hate. It means love less. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I loved less. It may be so, but I don't believe it is. I like to take it and let it stand just as it is. The fact is, God loved Jacob, and he did not love Esau. He did choose Jacob, but he did not choose Esau. However one wants to understand the word hate, whether literally or figuratively, it's clear that whatever God had for Jacob, he did not have for Esau. And it's clear from the text that the love God had for Jacob was not conditional, but unconditional. For neither Jacob nor Esau had yet been born, 
nor done anything good or evil. No one would say that a human being has to love everyone alike. God does have a general love for all men. He does love all men in the sense of sending sunshine and rain upon the wicked as well as upon the righteous. But there are some people for whom he has had a special love. And just as a man has a special love for his wife and his children, God has the right to have a special love for those that are the objects of his affection. Pastor Spurgeon continues, Why did God hate Esau? Why does God hate any man? I defy anyone to give any answer but this, because that man deserves to be hated. No reply but that can be true. If God deals severely with any person, it's because that person deserves all that he gets. God owes salvation to no one. God would be entirely just if he had uh, condemned Adam, condemned the race uh, uh, immediately after the fall. God would be just to send every single person to hell because what our sin deserves is the eternal wrath and cursing of God. The Synod of Dort explained it this way, God does not owe this grace to anyone. For what could God owe to one who has nothing to give that can be paid back? Indeed, what could God owe to one who has nothing of his own to give but sin and falsehood? It would be right of God to destroy all of us for our sins. And if he would have mercy on some, he has the right to do that. You know, Spurgeon uses an analogy of a man walking down the street and finding ten beggars. He's not obligated to give any of the beggars anything, but if he chooses to give one of the beggars some money, then what he's done is very gracious, and no one can charge him with injustice. And the reason is those beggars don't have any claims upon the man's money. In the same way, we have no claims upon God's goodness or God's favor, and the fact that God saves anyone declares him to be an incredibly gracious and loving God. As I've said before, election puts nobody in hell and a vast multitude of people in heaven that wouldn't be there otherwise. In heaven, we have nothing to boast about in ourselves. In hell, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Both the Holy Spirit and Paul knew that this teaching was going to be controversial and purposely set out to address the very natural human objections from the outset. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. When I say that to people, they say, that's not fair. This is exactly the objection that the Apostle Paul anticipated in the ninth chapter of Romans when he talks about these, the doctrine of election and the difference between Jacob and Esau. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Before they were ever born, before they had done anything, good or evil. The question I have for those that disagree with the doctrine of unconditional election is this. Does your view of election provoke the same kind of antagonism that Paul's does? Would you have ever included the objection that the Apostle Paul includes in Romans chapter 9? If election is based upon foreseen faith or based upon something in man, then why in the world does Paul anticipate this objection? Who would ever charge God with being unjust or unfair? This last observation is a vital point. There are many in view attempts to make the doctrine of election seem fair to the mind of man. 
But the Apostle Paul takes the opposite tack. Rather than making it more palatable, he continues to emphasize the absolute sovereignty of God by giving us another Old Testament example. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Is Paul saying that God actually hardens people's hearts? That he makes them stonier than they already are? Well, there's no getting around it. Six times in the Exodus account, we're told, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it's important to understand how God accomplished this. He didn't just arbitrarily harden Pharaoh's heart against his will. Three times it declares that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What happened is that God sovereignly created situations where Pharaoh was confronted with the decision as to whether to obey God or instead lean to his own will and understanding. Given his sinful nature and the fact that God didn't grant him the grace to overcome that nature, Pharaoh chose sin of his own accord. And as sin always does, it brought forth spiritual decay and death. And so Pharaoh's heart became harder with each successive act of rebellion. God brought forth the test, but it was Pharaoh that failed them. This same principle of withholding the gift of grace was reflected in Jesus' own earthly ministry many centuries later. When asked by his disciples why he spoke to the people in parables, the Lord replied, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. In other words, as with Pharaoh, there are people that God has chosen not to help believe. And when confronted with the truth, it is these people who of their own accord will choose to harden their hearts and persecute the truth. In fact, in their case, they opted to nail it to a cross. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, when he contemplates the fact that many of the people in the town where he did his main public ministry in Caesarea had not believed or received the gospel, he thanked God that, that God had hidden the gospel from the wise and the prudent and had revealed it unto babes. And then he went on to express his reason for that thanksgiving, because it was good in your sight, Father. So it was the Father's choice as to who was to be re a recipient of the gospel and who would be hard-hearted toward it. Logically, this answer raises another question. And Paul anticipates it by asking, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? His answer is a stiff rebuke to any man who would dare sit in judgment on God. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Paul insists that as sinners, we have no rights before God. We have no claims on his mercy. God could have elected everyone, 
He could have elected no one. The choice, therefore, was his and his alone. Students come to me all the time and they ask me a myriad of theological questions. And I've never had a student come to me and say to me, R.C., why does God save anybody? That's the real question. Not why is there only one way. Why does he save me? I can't, I can't imagine why he would save a, a creation that is in manifest, consistent, impenitent rebellion against his glory and against his majesty. And yet, God's grace is so profound that he sends his son and that he, God initiates a plan of salvation, a plan of redemption. And it doesn't include the salvation of everybody. I don't know why he doesn't save everybody. But I don't know why he saves anybody. <laughs> so those are both questions that I'd like to have to ask him because I can't answer them for him. Paul continues, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? John Gill explains, God is represented as the potter and men as clay in his hands, and God appoints out of it persons to different uses and purposes for his own glory as he sees fit. Many people think they have trouble with election or predestination, but as I said earlier, their problem is really with the doctrine of man. They don't understand or believe the doctrine of the fall of man. They basically deny original sin because once you acknowledge that man is fallen and man is born in a sinful condition, that his heart, mind, and will are against God, then you will see that election is essential if anybody is going to go to heaven. The ninth chapter of Romans, as well as numerous other passages, led the Synod of Dort to reject the Arminian doctrine of conditional election. They labeled it heresy, likened it to Pelagianism, and called it an error by which the Dutch churches have for some time been disturbed. Election, according to the Synod of Dort, does not save anyone. It simply marked those in Christ whom God, of his own free will, chose to be the objects of his affection and mercy. Election is in Christ, who by his blood purchased everything that chose a need for salvation, including regeneration and faith. And this teaching became the next big issue of contention for the Arminian party. Many Christians are familiar with the acronym T-U-L-I-P, TULIP, as shorthand for Reformed or Calvinistic theology. 
And there can be no doubt that the most controversial and misunderstood of all the so-called five points of Calvinism is found in the concept that is framed by the letter L, limited atonement. When used to explain the work of Jesus on the cross, many believers respond with indignation. It's as if Calvinists are somehow downgrading or limiting what the Lord accomplished at Calvary. To be saved. That's one of the reasons why it's important when we, when we use the language to remind our Arminian friends that both views in some sense limit the atonement. We limit its intent. They limit its power. The Calvinists believe that the atoning work of Christ was limited only to the elect. The cross purchased and guaranteed everything the elect sinner needs to be justified, including regeneration or the new birth, faith and repentance unto salvation. The Arminians, on the other hand, believe that Jesus' work on the cross was not designed to purchase a specific people for himself nor was it to secure salvation for any particular sinner. The intention was to simply make salvation possible for any person who would, of his or her own free will, repent and believe. You know, we, we would expect that the idea of God choosing would be offensive to the rebellious human soul, but even more so in our culture, where free will and I'll have it my way is at an almost at an idolatrous level. So it's not surprising to me that people are offended by the idea of God's sovereign choice in this generation. Dr. Lorraine Botner, author of the book The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, explains that the Arminian view of the atonement can be compared to a wide bridge that extends most of the way across a river. In order to reach the other side, the sinner must take the last and final step. The Calvinists, on the other hand, believe that the bridge, while narrow, did in fact extend all the way to the other shore. The sinner does not and cannot take any steps. Regeneration is the rapture, if you will, of the sinner from one kingdom to the other, and it's the work of Christ alone. The Synod of Dort asserted that the fundamental flaw of the Arminian view of the atonement goes back to their defective view of the fall of man into sin. John Owen, in his classic work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, observed that the merit or atonement of Christ was to the Arminian an ointment in a box set out in the gospel to the view of all, and those who will, by their own strength, lay hold on it and apply it to themselves would be healed. Of course, if man were simply wounded by the fall, this position would be reasonable. However, as we saw earlier, man is not merely wounded, he's dead. And medicine to a dead man, as the old adage goes, is the supreme example of a day late and a dollar short. Man needs much more than medicine to resurrect his dead spirit. He needs the Holy Spirit to bring him back to life. This next point can get a little confusing, so try and pay close attention as we distinguish between historic and modern Arminianism. To illustrate the historical Arminian position as presented by the Remonstrants, consider this quote by Dr. J. Kenneth Greider, professor of theology at the Nazarene Theological Seminary, a school that is self-consciously Arminian. Many Arminians whose theology is not very precise say that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. 
Yet such a view is foreign to Arminianism, which teaches instead that Christ suffered for us. Arminians teach that what Christ did, he did for every person. Therefore, what he did could not have been to pay the penalty, since no one would then ever go into eternal punishment. Dr. Greider is rightfully scolding his fellow Arminians for being inconsistent in their understanding of the design and purpose of Jesus' work on Calvary. In summary, Dr. Greider says, number one, most modern Arminians do not know the teachings of historic Arminianism as represented by the Remonstrance. Number two, historic Arminianism believes that what Jesus did, he did for everyone equally and Number three, historic Arminianism, as expressed in the Remonstrance, does not teach that Christ died or paid for anyone's sins. He only suffered for them. Concerning the first point, it's true that most Arminians today don't understand historical Arminianism very well. And this does create some confusion as to precisely what the term means. As for the second point, does the Bible teach that what Jesus did, he did equally for everyone? Arminians use as their proof texts passages that include the words all, whole, and world in relation to God's intentions in salvation, interpreting it to mean every single person. But does all mean all, all the time? The Bible uses these universal terms, but many people don't understand it's not merely the biblical use of terms like this, but in all language, in all of English language, it is constantly done that people use universal terms when they don't mean a universal fact that they're talking about. I mean, we all say that all the time. We say all when we don't mean all. For example, the Bible says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. No, it didn't. You're either going to have to realize that that is figurative language, or you're going to have to say the Bible is in error. How much were the people in the Yucatan Peninsula taxed? How about the Chinese? How much taxes do they pay to Caesar? Did a decree go out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed? In actuality, it never did. It went out that all of the Roman world should be taxed. Another example can be found in Luke 2.10. We read that the angel who announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds declared, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Should the word all be understood to mean every single person? Or was he speaking of all people in the sense of ethnicity? If you believe the former, then we must ask if the birth of Christ brought good tidings of great joy to the Pharisees. How about to Herod or Pontius Pilate? Did they find great joy in the birth of the Messiah? And what about Colossians 1, 5, and 6? Paul declares that by 54 AD, the truth of the gospel had gone out into all the world. Did Paul literally mean that the gospel had been carried to the Americas or Australia? Of course not. Geography wasn't what he was speaking about. And the same is true for John 12, 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We all say all, all of the time when we don't mean it. No, we don't. 
some people never say all. They speak Chinese. You don't say all all of the time, either when you mean it or when you don't mean it. There's some time that you sleep. There's some time that you eat. There's some time when you say other things. You really don't say all all of the time, do you? And so, therefore, these people don't understand the figurative use of language. And the, there are over almost 600 different species of figures of speech found in the Bible. And they're found in most any large novel or even a big newspaper. You'll find them. They're everywhere. No, they're not. They're not everywhere. They're here and there and the other place. We see we do that all the time that we don't even realize we're doing it. No, we don't do it all the time. You see, if, you, if I called you every time you used a universal word and you didn't mean it universally, I would be half having to stop you all of the time. No, I wouldn't. The fact is that we use this type of hyperbole, well, all the time. Newscasters refer to the whole city turning out to greet a world championship team when what they technically mean is a very large crowd. We talk about the entire world being fixated upon the news of Princess Diana's death. On and on it goes. Well, if that's true for us, might not the same principle apply when we find similar expressions used in Scripture? The simple fact is that most scholars would suggest that it's even more true that hyperbolic speech was very common within the Hebrew culture. This is not to say that the words all, world, and whole world in the Bible can never be taken to mean every single person or thing. In some cases, they can. But how we understand these words, like virtually every other word in the Bible, is based upon the context, when and to whom they were written, and then compared to other scriptures. The verse quoted most often to prove what Jesus did, he did for every single person, is perhaps the most well-known and loved passage in the whole world. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In their universalistic interpretation of this verse, there are many and fails to take into account when and to whom the Lord was speaking. They ignore the historical context that a young Jewish rabbi was addressing a culture obsessed with race and ethnicity, that while the occasional Gentile might somehow find his way into the kingdom of God, it was to the physical descendants of Abraham that salvation really belonged. We need to understand the Jewish mindset was that a Messiah was going to come. And this was a Messiah of and for the Jews. And it was never, never dawned on a Jewish mind that their Messiah was going to pay for the sins of a Roman. I mean, these people needed to be destroyed and demolished and thrown out not redeemed and saved and taken to heaven. This was almost an unthinkable thing. And so when John on several different occasions said that he is the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, he is talking about the amazing thing is that a Messiah has come which is going to pay for the sins of people in Israel and also for people in all other countries in the, in the world. The great Baptist scholar John Gill 
echoes this interpretation. Now in opposition to such a notion, our Lord addresses this Jew, Nicodemus, and it's as if he had said, you, Nicodemus, say that when the Messiah comes, only the Israelites, the peculiar favorites of God, shall share in the blessings that come by and with the Messiah, and that the Gentiles shall reap no advantage by him, being hated of God and rejected of him. But I tell you, God has so loved the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Besides, if the world always means every single person, then the Arminians have a problem when they get to verses like 1 John 2.15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If consistent, Arminians should read this as saying, if anyone loves every single person, the love of the Father is not in him. But this interpretation would contradict the express admonition that we are to love everybody even our enemies. Phrases like all, all men, and whole world were used by the writers of the New Testament to correct the Jewish mindset that the Messiah was coming to save them, meaning the physical descendants of Abraham alone. The writers used these words to show that Christ came to save all men without distinction of nationality or race, that Jesus died for Jews and Gentiles alike. These words were not used to suggest that he died for every single person without exception. So the next question would be, are there any passages that would seem to limit the extent of the atonement to less than every single person? And the answer to that question is an unqualified yes. In Isaiah 53 we read, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And again in verse 12, He poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. Notice that the word is not all, but many. No matter how one slices it, the word many cannot mean every single person. In a previous section, we noted the words of Jesus recorded in Matthew 20:16: Many are called, but few are chosen. Twelve verses later, Jesus, using the same language found in Isaiah 53, states concerning the scope of his atoning work, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Here the Messiah plainly states his ultimate mission, to offer his life as a ransom, as the price paid to deliver somebody from slavery, death, and imprisonment. And is this ransom on behalf of everyone? Well, Jesus said that it's for the benefit of many. Revelation 5, 9 reads, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You know, what we often hear is that God redeemed every tribe, tongue, and nation. But what it says in Revelation 5, 9 is that he redeemed out of every tribe and tongue and nation, which emphasizes more his sovereign choice within the broader people group of the earth. Let's look at one last verse like this before we move on. In John's Gospel, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. 
Once again, the Messiah is referring to the atonement, the pain of the ransom, and he states that he does it on behalf of his sheep. Many of the Jews who heard this teaching declared that Jesus was mad and had a demon. Later, they caught up with him and asked, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus replies, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. J.P. Boyce, founder of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the flagship school of the Southern Baptist Convention, notes, number one, the sheep here are those to whom he will give eternal life. Number two, they are those for whom he lays down his life. Number three, they are not all because he tells those who were rejecting him that they were not his sheep. And number four, the whole language used implies that the salvation of the sheep alone is the object for which his life is laid down. And in John 10, Jesus did not say, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the wolves, goats, and sheep. He said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep that they might have life. That when Jesus was hanging upon the cross, he was particularly dying for specific people. All those whom the Father had given to him were on his heart, and he was laying down his life, shedding his blood for them. He was substituting himself for them, his life for theirs, paying for their sins. This is what he meant when he talked about his sheep. He said, I lay down my life for my sheep. And in the same chapter, John 10, he turns to the Pharisees, and he says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Jesus specifically substituted himself for God's elect, and those are the ones who will be saved by his death. Invariably, the Arminian will counter at this point with one of their favorite proof texts. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Once again, it all comes down to all. Does this passage mean that God longs for every person to be saved, and therefore that Jesus died for everyone so that at least his or her salvation is a possibility? Or does all here refer to every person within a particular category of humanity? Peter is talking about the people to whom he's writing, us. What he's saying, God is not willing that any of us should perish. That's why he delays these things, to make it absolutely certain that all of us come to repentance and receive the benefits of salvation. Well, then you have to ask further, who are the us? And again, if you look at the people to whom both First and Second Peter are addressed, are whom? The elect. Peter goes out of his way to, to call the recipients of his letter the elect. And so what he's saying is, is that God is not willing that any of his elect would perish. Rather than defeating Calvinism, this is one of the strongest Calvinistic passages that I think we can find anywhere in Scripture. There's a very similar passage of Scripture to which the Arminian also appeals. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Well, what Paul is doing in that passage is he is defending his ministry to the Gentiles. He said, he, he appointed me as an apostle and a teacher to the Gentiles. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And in justification of his ministry to the Gentiles, he's emphasizing that the ransom of Christ is for all, not just the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. Another favorite passage often quoted by Arminians is found in the second epistle of Peter. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Focusing on the phrase, even denying the Lord who bought them, Many modern-day Arminians teach that Christ's work on Calvary purchased salvation for everyone, even for those who end up in hell. John Owen would argue that uh, this not only does not refer to Jesus, it does not refer to his act of purchasing redemption for the elect on the cross, that that which is bought falls short of the purchase of redemption, because there's nothing here about the blood of Christ, nothing here about the atonement, nothing here about the purchase of redemption. Those are things that we add into the text. It's important to note that the word for Lord is not the common word used in relation to Jesus, kurios. It's the Greek word despotes, from which we get the English word despot. Its meaning is sovereign master, creator, or ruler, and conveys the idea of owner. The Greek word for bot, agorazo, in connection with despotes, implies the Lord's de facto right of ownership as creator. Peter is not teaching a universal or general atonement. In fact, he's not teaching about the atonement of Christ at all. What he's saying is that these false teachers are denying the Lord God, their creator who made them, and as the creator owns them. If one maintains that Jesus purchased salvation for every single person, that what he did, he did for every person equally, then one would naturally expect that Jesus would pray for everyone. Note again the great care and saving power Jesus has toward those for whom he died. Therefore, because Christ continues forever as the unchangeable high priest, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. But does Jesus pray for everyone? In what is commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of John, the Son of God intercedes before the Father. I pray for them those whom the Father had given him. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus explicitly states that he does not pray for every single person, rather only those whom the Father had given him. In fact, we would do well to carefully consider a few of the preceding verses, noting particularly the words we have set in bold. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me. 
I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Let's now move to the third point, that in the words of Dr. Greider, Christ never paid the penalty for our sins, because what Christ did, he did for every person. Therefore, what he did could not have been to pay the penalty, since no one would then ever go into eternal punishment. From the position of the Remonstrants, what Dr. Greider is saying here is correct. Unlike many modern-day Arminians, he's being consistent with both his presuppositions and the meaning of words like ransom, redemption, and propitiation as they're used in the Bible. He understands that when payment is made, ownership of that person or thing has been ransomed, now belongs to the one who made the payment. If Jesus paid for the sins of every single person, then everyone would belong to him and be in heaven with him, and no one would be lost to hell. And yet, but for the rank liberal with little or no respect for scripture, the concept of universal salvation is not an option. What's left then for those who reject universalism on the one hand and limited atonement on the other is to say that Jesus' sacrifice made redemption possible for people but did not pay the penalty for anyone's sins. One of the difficulties with affirming a doctrine that says that Christ's goal, Christ's intention, Christ's work really, really did cover the sins of every human being that ever lived uh, is that it makes God out to be an unjust judge. If you borrow money from me and another gentleman comes along and, and, and pays off that debt for you, I can't then come after you and say, hey, you need, to, you need to pay that debt. It's been paid. In like manner, if Jesus died for all the sins of all, all, God, of all people, then hell must be empty. Owen said this, quoting the Arminian view, if Christ died to pay for all of the sins of all of the people in the world, which is what the Arminians hold, then why are not all of the people in the world saved? To which they will respond, well, you see, that's only because they don't accept Christ by faith. Well, now, is not the rejection of Christ and unbelief, is that not also sin? Does not the Bible speak of a wicked heart of unbelief? Does not the Bible command us repeatedly to believe? To repent and believe the gospel, that's not a well wish, it's a command. That's an imperative. Therefore, whatever God commands us to do, if we don't do it, that's a sin of omission. It is a sin. And if Christ paid for all of the sins of all of the people of the world, and unbelief is also a sin that he also paid for, again, I ask, why are not all of the people in the world saved? That has never been answered. As a result of their belief in the universal application of the work of Christ, the Remonstrance was forced to reshuffle the historic teaching of the Church and embrace a governmental theory of the Atonement. The doctrine has two main points that we've looked at. One, that Jesus did not pay for anyone's sins, and two, it's the sufferings of Christ that are the focal point of the Atonement, not His death. These two points may shock modern-day Arminians, 
But please realize this is not our opinion of what the Remonstrance Arminians taught. These are the words of one who holds consistently to that position. Again, referencing the quote by Dr. Greider, Arminianism teaches instead not that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, but that he suffered for us. When modern-day Arminians tell sinners, Christ paid for all of your sins, in the words of C.H. Spurgeon, they are uttering a dangerous lie. Spurgeon went on to explain what made it dangerous. When justice once is satisfied, it were injustice if it should ask for more. He has punished Christ. Why should he punish twice for one offense? Christ has died for all his people's sins, and if thou art in covenant, thou art one of Christ's people. Damn thou canst not be. Suffer for thy sins thou canst not, until God can be unjust and demand two payments for one debt. He cannot destroy the soul for whom Jesus died. Understanding this, Remonstrance Arminians insisted that Christ never paid for anyone's sins. Modern Arminians, on the other hand, have him paying for most sins, but not every single one. The Arminian has the problem of Christ only dying for some sins. He doesn't really atone for all sins because the sin of unbelief can't really be incorporated there. Because uh, if a person doesn't believe in the cross and in Christ, then they don't receive the benefit of the atonement. Modern-day Arminians, though they rarely say it in such a matter-of-fact way, teach that Christ did 99% of the work in redemption. But unless man adds his faith, his small little fraction of effort, conjured up from the moral residue still in him after the fall, then the 99% that Christ paid is of no effect. No matter how you slice it, the gospel as offered by Arminians is not paid in full. You know, though very few would say it, the implication of Arminian theology is that Jesus provided 99% of everything uh, that we need in salvation, but still that 1% is man's free will. Without man's free will, without the exercise of man's will, uh, there is no salvation. The reality is, though, that Jesus provided everything that we need for salvation. The Calvinists maintain the reason anyone believes is because they have received all the benefits of the atonement. Jesus paid for every sin committed by those given to him by the Father, even the sin of unbelief. Understand Calvinism, as represented by the Synod of Dort, is the most grace-centered teaching on justification. It offers sinners absolutely no room for boasting. As the old Calvinist hymn declares, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone. The Arminian teaches a works righteousness salvation, even though he will teach that it is of grace. Nevertheless, he believes there is something man contributes to redemption. The Calvinist, on the other hand, says man's righteousness is as filthy rags. He has nothing to contribute in order that God would accept him as right. Therefore, the righteousness must come from Christ. It is an alien righteousness. It is the works of Christ that saves us, not the works of man.
In order to explain away this charge, modern Arminians developed the doctrine of prevenient grace. This concept suggests that there's a grace that works before saving grace, a sort of awakening or resuscitation of the dead sinner. He is not at this point born again and spiritually alive, but he has been made supernaturally aware of his state by the Holy Spirit and has been given sufficient light and power to repent and choose life if he so wills it. Or he can reject God's offer, roll over, and go back to a state of spiritual death. The major problem with the idea of a prevenient grace or grace that operates prior to salvation that brings a person, as it were, up to the door of salvation, and then it's up to him to go for, take it from there. The problem with that is that make, it makes man the final determiner in his own salvation. And so salvation is a matter of man and God working together as opposed to salvation being all of grace. And so man has some ground whereby he can boast, or at least he can look at his fellow creatures and say, there's something special about me that you don't have because I chose and you didn't. So in the final analysis, the reason why you're in the kingdom and your neighbor isn't is because you did the right thing and they did the wrong thing. And that does give you something about which to boast. Now where that puts you in a precarious position is that if you really, in your heart of hearts, are trusting your right decision, your right action, as the reason why you are saved. Now you've come uh, perilously close to the Roman Catholic view because you're now trusting in something you did in some kind of action that is at least uh, bearing what the Roman Church calls congruous merit because it's on that basis that God accepts you because you did the right thing and your neighbor did the wrong thing. So even though you protest that you're not trusting in your own righteousness and you're not trusting in your own works, when we scratch under the surface, so often what we find is that you really are trusting in your own works. This was Spurgeon's conclusion also. He said, the doctrine of justification itself, as preached by an Arminian, is nothing but the doctrine of salvation by works. And if justification comes by works, said the Apostle Paul, then Christ has died in vain. That Arminianism fundamentally glorifies man, uh, and it does not challenge his autonomy at any point. And anything that glorifies man as opposed to God is something we should not have anything to do with. So what was the purpose and design of the atonement? Or to put it another way, for whom did Christ die? The sufficiency of the atonement, the value of the atonement, is infinite. But it was designed to effect the redemption of all of God's elect and no one else. God is a God who elects for His purpose. And He says, sets a plan for His sheep. He knows His sheep and he prepares salvation for his sheep, and he sends Christ to lay down his life for his sheep. As stated at the beginning of this section, every view limits the atonement in some fashion. That both views, in some sense, limit the atonement. We limit its intent. They limit its power. 
They teach that Christ paid for most, but not every sin of every single person. It's therefore up to each individual to add their faith, their little penny, to the overall price of redemption. As for the remonstrance Arminians, well, they limited the gospel scope and power. They taught that Christ did not pay for the sins of anyone. And the Synod of Dort rightly concluded that their teaching brought out of hell the Pelagian error. Does God have the right and the ability to do what He wills? Well, consider the words of the prophet Isaiah. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. The next question addressed by the Synod of Dort was how sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins can come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Since Christ died and purchased salvation for those whom the Father had given Him, was it inevitable that the elect would come to faith in Christ? The answer to this question went to the heart of the debate concerning the nature and the sovereign power of God. The Calvinist answered, yes, it was inevitable, for who has resisted His will? If God chose you in Christ, you will inevitably and inexorably come to faith. The remonstrance, on the other hand, said no. Man's will is free from the ultimate effects of the fall, and therefore he can accept or reject God's offer of grace. To the Calvinists, this view reduced God to a concerned bystander and placed man in the ultimate position of sovereignty. Yeah, one of the things that I really find funny in our culture is this emphasis on God as a lonely old man who's up in heaven hoping that somebody turns to him. Jesus is somebody who's standing outside the door knocking, hoping that somebody follows him. And the reality is in Scripture, God goes after people. He has sovereignly chosen. He's chosen Paul, knocks him off the horse and says, I've chosen you for this purpose. Get busy. It's a sovereign God in operation, not a lonely old man hoping people will follow him. The former slave trader turned preacher John Newton author of the hymn Amazing Grace, chided the remonstrance when he wrote, We zealously contend for this point in our debates with the Arminians and are ready to wonder that any should be hardy enough to dispute the Creator's right to do what He wills. Again, this teaching goes to the heart of the Arminians' misunderstanding of the extent and depth of the fall. If man were merely wounded and not dead, then he's still conscious and has a choice of whether to take the medicine. The Calvinist, on the other hand, taught that when man fell, he died spiritually and therefore isn't capable by himself of even choosing, much less taking, the medicine of God's eternal life. Like a corpse in a morgue, all he can do is await the autopsy. 
He isn't going to be able to respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repentance and redemption unless the same Spirit makes him alive. The Bible talks about the outward call, which comes through our lips and our mouths as we proclaim the gospel, and the inward call of the Holy Spirit. The outward call, as I was just telling people recently, is always invariably ineffective and ineffectual. It never works by itself. It is only when the outward call of the gospel is accompanied by the inward call of the Holy Spirit that the heart is changed, the mind is open, the will is transformed, and then the person says, it is the voice of my beloved. The very moment that God regenerated you and raised you from the dead spiritually, gave you new life, changed your heart, that split second you begin believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, loving Him, seeking to serve Him, and repenting of your sins. But it is that initial act of God in irresistible grace that... As we discussed in a previous section, election in Christ marks sinners to be recipients of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Once the Spirit regenerates, the formerly dead sinner is now alive and comes to faith in Christ. As Jesus famously stated in the third chapter of John, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here the Lord clearly identifies this quickening and the resultant ability to see and understand God's kingdom as a spiritual rebirth, as being literally born again. Nicodemus asked, how can this be? And Jesus responded by first acknowledging the problem. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And as the Lord stated three chapters later, the flesh profits nothing. Being somewhat of a rationalist, Nicodemus wondered aloud, if it were left to man in his own flesh and ability, how could he be born again? Jesus responded in both John 3 and 6 with the solution to this dilemma. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It is the Spirit that quickens. The Holy Spirit has to first come and regenerate the person who is dead in their trespasses and sins before he or she can, in the words of Jesus, see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. But we will be saved only when God reaches into our hearts and changes them. He is the seeker. He is the one who is aggressive. He is the one who reaches to us. If it were up to our searching and up to our finding, no one would ever be saved. Uh, it is not that we can find God, but it is that if we are saved, it is that we will be found by God. He will reach us by His Spirit and turn us around. He will arrest us and He will bring us uh, to salvation by His own sovereign grace. When the fact the Bible teaches that the heart of man is at enmity with God, that we hate God. The more we know about Him, the more we'll hate Him. It, our heart has to be changed. The Synod of Dort, in response to the Arminian view, said that the grace of God is irresistible, that as a result of His mercy and regenerating power, the elect will repent and believe in the Son. God, the Holy Spirit, knows those who are chosen by the Father and given to the Son, and in due time He regenerates them. 
and while later we'll look at the means by which God has appointed to effect this work of regeneration and the part man plays in these means, the actual act of regeneration is monergistic, the work of God alone. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. But it is that initial act of God in irresistible grace that takes you out of death into life and causes you to be a new creature in which act you're passive because you're dead. But the moment it happens, you are not passive anymore. Think of it this way. The idea of being born is a process that begins with conception and ends with the actual birth. When you were conceived in your mother's womb, prior to that time, you did not exist and therefore you had no conscious thoughts. You simply received biological life as a result of the union of your father and mother. And so it is with being born again of the Holy Spirit. As Pastor Walter Bowie noted earlier, in answer to Nicodemus' question, Jesus did not say, repent and believe. Pastor John Gill notes, this grace of the Spirit in regeneration, like the wind, is powerful and irresistible. It carries all before it. There is no withstanding it. It throws down Satan's strongholds, demolishes the fortifications of sin, the whole posse of hell, and the corruptions of a man's heart are not a match for it. When the Spirit works, who can let? This understanding led John to write in the introduction to his gospel, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I think John 6 is a wonderful passage that speaks of irresistible grace when Jesus talks about uh, all that the Father gives to me um, will come to me, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. The word draw is a powerful word. It was used of a dragnet when fishermen would go out into the sea, cast their nets in, they would draw the fish. This is a powerful descriptor of the work of God's grace. Good point. Some have suggested that the phrase in John 6:44, no man may come to me unless the Father draws him, is a type of wooing. But as Dr. Haskell pointed out, the word means to drag. The same Greek word is used in James 2.6. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? To say instead, don't let the rich oppress and woo you into the courts is of course absurd. By rejecting irresistible grace, the Arminians made man and his will ultimately sovereign. In an effort to satisfy man's humanistic standards of fairness, God's glory and power were inevitably compromised. Implicitly, he was reduced to a mere vice-regent, roaming the earth, knocking on the doors of human hearts, and hoping that people would see the wonder of his plan and accept Jesus as their personal Savior. Revelation 3.20, referring to Christ standing at the door and knock, is not a reference to an individual person, Christ knocking at the door, trying to get in, uh, allowing uh, him to redeem them. The passage is really directed to the church. And the idea is that Christ is calling the churches to follow him and not to fall into apostasy or idolatry as some of the churches in Revelation had already been cited for. He was arguing that it is he who is to lead the church. It is he 
who is the head of the church. But if the church does not yield to the leadership of the Spirit in the direction of their church to follow the way of Christ, then he is one who stands outside knocking and yet a church who is ignoring him. It's important to note that by irresistible grace, the Calvinists were in no way saying that people cannot resist the grace of God. Quite the contrary. Unless God made us alive, not a single one of us would ever stop resisting it. When we say irresistible grace, we're not saying that uh, sinners do not resist Christ. We're simply saying that all men who are sinners naturally are not responsive to the sweet overtures of God's love. But we simply mean that those whom God has elected, for whom Christ died, the Holy Spirit never fails to bring them to salvation. That's accomplished by uh, uh, opening their mind to understand divine truth, changing their affection so that they love that which they formerly hated, and then releasing the, the power of sin in their will that they may respond and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. This issue of saving grace was it resistible or irresistible? At its core was a theological battle over who was sovereign, God or man. Appealing to the Word of God, the Synod of Dort accused the remonstrance of rejecting the God who is and substituting instead one they had fashioned in their own image and to their own liking, one that was ultimately subservient to the will of man and some element of chance. As one noted reform scholar observed, the debate was not between some law intermingled with the doctrine of chance, miscalled freedom on the one hand, and the doctrines of rigid Calvinism on the other, but simply between God and chance. If an iota of chance is allowed into the universe, then God's sovereignty is denied, and God is not God. The grace that theologians from Augustine to Calvin were defending was truly amazing. Jesus went to a bloody cross, they said, in order to ransom the elect, those whom the Father had given him. Looking over the porticos of Solomon's temple, the very symbol of salvation for God's elect children, Jesus declared, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Later at the Last Supper, he affirmed this bold guarantee when he joyfully presented the eleven disciples to the Father and declared, while I was with them, I kept them in thy name. I have guarded them, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Thereby affirming God's absolute sovereignty over everything, including even the evil decisions of his enemies. All this being true, it becomes logically necessary 
to use the words of the Holy Spirit in the epistle to the Hebrews that God and God alone is the author and finisher of our, the elect's, faith. This truth was summed up well in the 17th chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Or, to put it in the vernacular of today, once you're truly saved, that's it. Your eternal salvation is secure. Arminians shake their heads in disbelief at this teaching. They look at the multitudes that profess faith in Christ while at the same time embracing the very sins that nail Jesus to a bloody cross. This promise that once you're saved, you're always saved seems for them to be a recipe for disaster, an inducement to carnal living and compromise. And as if to confirm their worst fears, more than a few theologians and Christian authors argue that lordship is an option for mature believers only, a brass ring for those who want a, quote, better resurrection. At the end of the day, these same authors insist the gracious gift that is salvation could very well result in a person who remains a slave to sin their whole lives while professing to be blood-bought, redeemed sons and daughters of the living God. Good fruit, then, is incidental to the Christian life, and the grace of God does not necessarily produce any outward effect. We'll come back to this point in a moment. But for now, it should be noted that concerning the doctrine of perseverance, the Arminian party again sided with the Church of Rome against the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church, in fact, had accused the Protestant Reformation with rank presumption on this very issue, insisting that no man could be truly sure of his salvation. If anyone saith that man is truly absolved from his sin and justified, and that by his faith alone absolution and justification are effected, let him be anathema. I'm saved, the logic goes, because I asked Jesus into my heart when I was 10. And while I might not be living for him now, I'm going to heaven because I prayed the prayer and walked an aisle. Let me simply lay it on the line for our modern Arminian brethren. This is not the Reformed teaching of the perseverance of the saints, and we stand with them in condemning this teaching as a doctrine of demons. Jesus made it clear that while the law is not the gospel, the gospel is not lawless. In the seventh chapter of Matthew, Jesus warned, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Any teaching that suggests that the Christian is free from the law, oh happy condition, we may sin as we please and still have remission, is a damnable lie and as much a perversion of God's word as the distortion breathed by the serpent in Eden's garden. 
Reformed theology recognizes that people can hear the word and respond with joy, but because there's no root of true regeneration in their heart, they soon fall away. It's not that they were saved and then became unsaved. It's that they were never truly saved at all. And this is why Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is not saying, I knew you, but then because of your lawlessness, I've become forgetful. He said, I never knew you. Number two, individuals can react to the gospel with worldly sorrow, which is in fact the only type of repentance the unregenerate heart can muster. And this sorrow, while it may look to both the person and those around him as authentic and truly life-giving, in the end, it only produces death. And number three, people can experience a dimension of enlightenment as they hear the good word of God, taste of the heavenly gift, the powers of the world to come, and partake of the blessings wrought by the Holy Spirit as they attend a church or live within a Christian family, community, or culture, and still go to hell when they die. This passage in Hebrews 6 is a popular verse for Arminians looking to prove that the perseverance of the saints isn't true and that a Christian really can lose their salvation. There isn't time to look at all the reasons why this interpretation is wrong and why the true focus of this controversial passage is on outwardly Christian but inwardly unconverted people living among and sharing the blessings of a Christian family or community. If you would like to study this in more detail, allow me to recommend the commentaries of Matthew Henry, John Gill, or Matthew Poole. We'll leave this passage, however, by pointing out that the Arminian interpretation leads to one inevitable, profoundly unpleasant, and yes, unbiblical conclusion that there's no hope for the backslider. If Hebrews chapter 6, on the other hand, is simply saying that a person who persistently and consistently resists grace cannot be brought to repentance, then that provides for us the basis for great hope. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6 is an incredible encouragement for us to take the benefits of covenant life seriously, to not take them for granted, to, to watch the working of the Holy Spirit and see the good word of God and to taste the heavenly gift in such a way that the medicine of immortality brings us home to Jesus. You know, the standard Armenian interpretation of this passage doesn't wash. If a Christian can lose their salvation, then someone who's backslidden even for a season uh, can, has no hope of being restored because the writer of Hebrews clearly says that the blood of Jesus cannot be shed for them again. And no Armenian would hold that view. They, they urge their backslidden friends to come back to Jesus. And so clearly, they don't really believe their interpretation of this passage. Perseverance of the saints is no license to sin. It is a confidence and assurance as well as a call to a holy life, which is why the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12, 14, that we are to pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We have to pursue holiness because without that pursuit, without that holiness, we will not be saved. But that doesn't mean salvation is up to me. God grants what he requires, which is precisely what Augustine prayed. The Christian life is a call to holiness, growing in the fear and admonition of the Lord. 
This growth in sanctification is a necessary byproduct, the evidence of a converted heart. It is birthed and nurtured by the grace of God, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It was these good works that James referred to when he declared that the Christian should be able to show or demonstrate his faith through his works, and that any faith without these good works is dead. We do not live holy lives to make ourselves acceptable to God or to gain his love. But just as surely as light produces warmth, the regenerating presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts will inevitably result in an increase of holiness in our lives. Without that holiness, no man should presume that he has been generally converted. So does the Bible teach that one who has truly believed can never lose his salvation? Both Calvinists and modern-day Arminians agree that justification is by grace and not works. Both agree that by definition, grace means unconditional, unmerited, or unearned. We do not merit the merit of Christ. We, by grace through faith, a faith that is not of ourselves, but a gift from God, are given the merit of Christ. If this is true, if there are no conditions to grace, how can you lose it unless you believe deep down that you have done something, even the smallest thing, to earn it? If there were conditions, then salvation would be earned and kept by obedience to those conditions. Salvation then would not be by grace, but works. In short, God would owe you salvation because you did something to deserve, earn, or keep it. And if you earned it, it would stand to reason that you could unearn it. There are numerous passages in the scriptures that support the perseverance of the saints, the truth that God guarantees the eternal salvation of his elect. We've already looked at John 17, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. There's also Philippians 1 verse 6, which states, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Concerning this verse, Dr. Gordon Clark has noted, the work of salvation in the heart or soul was initiated by Christ, not the human person. The text does not say, that because Christ began to work after the sinner had started the good work, he, Christ, would continue his efforts too. The text says that Christ began the good work. He also will perfect or complete it, continuing his work throughout the now regenerated sinner's life. Then there's this awesome promise found in the 10th chapter of John. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The speaker is Jesus. He declares that he's the one who gives his followers eternal life, and that they shall never perish. How long is never? 
The issue of the perseverance of the saints emphasizes not what man does to keep his salvation, but what Christ has already accomplished. Paul addresses this with respect to the question of how many sins are forgiven through the atonement. To the Colossian church, he declared, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Concerning this verse, Dr. John Gill notes, Forgiveness of sin is not done by piecemeals, or at different times, or by diverse acts, but is done at once, and includes sin past, present, and to come, and is universal, reaches to all sin, original and actual, before and after conversion, sins of thought, word, and action. Many people tend to think of their conversion as a moment when all their past sins were forgiven and washed away. But their post-conversion sins are somehow different, consciously or more often subconsciously. There's a sense that they must somehow atone to God for these particular sins. But while atonement manward may be necessary to restore relationships and preserve the integrity of human culture, Godward, our post-conversion sins are washed away in the same way as those that preceded our relationship with Christ through his sacrifice on the cross. The simple fact is that when Jesus made this sacrifice, all of our sins lay in the future. And so Paul, writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, used the past tense, having forgiven you. If you truly have believed on the Lord Jesus, you are one of those given to him by the Father. And when he suffered and died, he paid for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus talks about those whom the Father has given him. None of those will be lost. All of those come to him, and all of those are preserved by him. But our assurance of salvation never rests in what we do, what we accomplish in our own faithfulness, but entirely depends upon God, upon the perfect propitiation of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice that he made, and the mediation of our faithful high priest who intercedes for us, and the work of his spirit uh, in, in our lives. If you look at Hebrews 6, we're told that we too have sure confidence and, and strong assurance. And the reason for it isn't because of anything we do, but because God interposed with an oath. He made that oath for Abraham, and he makes that oath for us as well. Invariably, there are those who will object to this based upon personal experience, that someone they once knew to be a Christian has fallen away from the faith. Okay, well, I, I knew a man who lived for, for, you know, for Christ for 20 years. Okay, he was, he was at church every single time that the doors were open. He ended up leaving his wife for another woman. Within the, the next year, he had completely given up the faith and just written it off as a, as a phase that he had gone through. About a year ago, he was killed in a car accident. So what you're telling me is that he's in heaven with the Lord today because once saved, always saved. No, we're not saying he's in heaven. I didn't know the man, and really, nobody else but God truly does either. None of us can ultimately know his heart, either at the presumed point of his conversion or at the moment of his death. It certainly doesn't look good for him. 
And if he is in hell, we only have to remember the verse we looked at earlier. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's possible for a person to go a long way and even convince those of us around that they are Christians. But the bottom line is what John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Again, John teaches that those who truly fall away were never genuine believers to begin with. Now we need to be careful here. If we see a professing Christian committing a grievous sin, we shouldn't begin by questioning their salvation. We should love and pray for them and then do what Jesus commanded us to do in Matthew 18. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. This is what the prophet Nathan did after King David committed both adultery and murder. If we had been among King David's advisors and had seen all that had gone on surrounding his relationship with Uriah and Bathsheba, we might have been tempted to conclude that David was not a true believer. We would have been wrong, however, as David later demonstrated through his repentance. In conclusion, I should mention that Arminius himself was not fully convinced that a true believer could lose his salvation and advised that more study on this subject was needed. However, the vast majority of his followers would come to reject the perseverance of the saints and instead teach that a person could be saved and then lost, born again and unborn again, adopted and then divorced. Like with other issues we looked at, the Calvinists believed that the teaching of the remonstrance in this area was once again a direct result of their low view of the atonement. Because they held that Christ's sacrifice by itself didn't satisfy the penalty for anyone's sins, that it was left to the believer to do something to catalyze the process of forgiveness. It then made perfect sense that the believer could make that process ineffectual as well. And so not only our salvation, but also the preservation of our salvation was ultimately dependent upon man. The Synod of Dort emphatically disagreed. For God, who is rich in mercy, according to the unchangeable purpose of election, does not take his Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. Neither does he let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification, or commit the sin which leads to death, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and plunge themselves, entirely forsaken by him, into eternal ruin. The canons of Dort concluded by urging the Arminians to repent of the false doctrines contained within their protest and instead embrace the biblical and historic teaching of the Reformation. It closes with a prayer for redemption and faithfulness to God.
May God's Son, Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God and gives gifts to men, sanctify us in the truth, lead to the truth those who err, silence the mouths of those who lay false accusations against sound teaching, and equip faithful ministers of his word with a spirit of wisdom and discretion, that all they say may be to the glory of God and the building up of their hearers. Amen. we saw earlier, the Synod of Dort sat for six months. After reviewing the written protests and hearing the arguments, they declared the teaching of Arminius and his followers out of accord with the Bible and the confessions of the Dutch Church. In fact, they went so far as to label the Remonstrants and their doctrines as a form of the Pelagian heresy, a label modern Arminians reject as both unfair and unduly harsh. But was it unfair? First, it needs to be understood that as the men who condemned the Arminian Remonstrants looked across the doctrinal divide, they at times found themselves staring into the eyes of men whom they loved and with whom they had labored. Pastors, professors, students, fathers and sons came down on opposite sides of the theological fence. The final decision by the Synod of Dort was not made in haste nor were the Calvinists filled with joy in seeing the Arminians condemned for teaching error at best and heresy at worst. Repentance was their lofty goal. But as Martin Luther had declared just a century earlier, their thoughts were captive to the Word of God. When it came to the gospel, family and friendships were laid aside. Second, there's no getting around the fact that the Arminian controversy marked the beginning of liberalism in the modern church. The issue of how a sinner is justified, as serious as that was, was simply the symptom of a greater disease, the disease of unbelief that bore itself out in the years following the Synod of Dort. The doctrines of grace serve as a conserving factor for those central orthodox and evangelical doctrines that all true Christians hold dear. The doctrine of the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the necessity of salvation, the doctrine of the necessity of the atonement, the doctrine of justification by faith, the inspiration of the scripture. All of these things have a much more secure and solid foundation on the doctrines of grace. Dr. Philip Schaff confirmed this observation when he wrote, Calvinism represented the consistent, logical, conservative orthodoxy. Arminianism, an elastic, progressive, changing liberalism. But the ultimate reason that the Synod of Dort labeled the Remonstrants as being heretical was that they understood how the Arminian view of free will opened a theological can of worms in regard to all kinds of foundational issues, among them the doctrine of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Arminianism has real implications for the doctrine of Scripture. How can God superintend men's words so carefully and so precisely as to ensure an inerrant scripture if 
God is a God who allows absolute freedom and allows sinners like the Apostle Paul or sinners like the Apostle Peter to make absolute choices. If the Arminian God is inspiring scripture, we would expect it to be filled with some mistakes because that's the nature of freedom. If, on the other hand, we have the sovereign God who exercises his good providence for the purpose of mercy upon his creatures, then we can expect that there are times when he does not allow freedom in order for a particular task to be accomplished, thus superintending every single word that the Apostle Peter writes, though the Apostle Peter, as we know, is prone to sin. The Armenian says, no, you have to have free will that operates on its own and divine sovereignty respecting free will. If that is so, how can we be guaranteed that the persons who penned the Bible did not at some time exert their free will apart from the sovereignty of God and put some mistakes in it? And this is the common way that Arminianism leads. It leads to higher criticism. It leads to a man-centered understanding of the Bible and of inspiration. And eventually you, you lose the doctrine of inerrancy. Armenians have a problem defending the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture because of the way it would require God to uh, override the, the free will of man. Of course, this is not to say that all Armenians today are likely to compromise on the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Many, thankfully, do not. What we are seeing, however, is that one consistently holds to the Armenian doctrine of free will the foundation for believing that the Bible is the infallible and inerrant Word of God will be ultimately compromised. In fact, in another moment of candor, Dr. Greider acknowledges that while Arminians should have confidence that the Bible is inerrant on matters of faith and practice, they should remain open to the possibility of errors relating to math, history, and geography. Once inerrancy is questioned, all manner of other errors inevitably follow. It's a plain fact of history that many of the leaders of the Remonstrance, among them Conrad Vorstius and Simon Episcopius, ended up questioning, and in the case of Vorstius, denying the deity of Christ. Why? Because the Bible they held in their hands was written by men who had a free will, a will that was free from the full effects of the fall and the sovereignty of God. And it doesn't stop here. Whenever the tenets of Arminianism take root, the cancer of humanism inevitably creeps into the church and into the culture she's called to disciple. If man isn't completely fallen, as the Remonstrants argued, then it logically follows that he's capable of ascertaining truth, philosophical or scientific, through his unaided reason. Thus began the so-called Enlightenment culminating in David Hume's skepticism on the one hand and the scientific naturalism of Charles Darwin on the other. Politically speaking, Arminianism also leaves the door open for statism. The idea that man-made government, independent of the Word of God, can help fashion some form of Edenic paradise. It's no secret that a rigorous Calvinism in large part guided America's founding fathers and kept them from entrusting power to the state, intentionally binding it with the checks and balances of our tricameral system of government. 
One of the things that Calvinism sees in the scriptures is a kind of representative checks and balances system where you have mixed government. It's where the founding fathers really got the idea for the a great experiment in freedom that we call American liberty. It's really Presbyterianism applied to the civil sphere. In that sense, Calvinism is probably the most influential theological strain in all of constitutional history. This has shaped America in peculiar ways. Because of the checks and balances and the separation of powers, we have had a free economy. Because of that uh, checks and balances and separation of powers, we've been able to develop a system of the rule of law. Prosperity has been able to flourish side by side with freedom, a very unique thing in the history of the world. You know, the truth is, historically, once men begin to move away from a sovereign God who sovereignly chooses, once they move away from Calvinism and the social institution that Calvinism produces, they move towards humanistic statism. They move towards a reliance on other men, other institutions, um, and they move towards essentially what, uh, what one scholar called the messianic state, the belief that the state will rescue them. Uh, it's one of the great failings of the Arminian system. One of the things that Calvinism does is it leans toward a Republican style of, of government. In other words, uh, representative government where there are mixed powers, checks and balances and so forth. Whereas Arminianism is so individualistic, it, it leans much more to a, to a sort of mass, egalitarian, de democratic system. Uh, that language sounds good to us as Americans, but in fact, what it, what it leads to is chaos, absolute chaos, every man for himself. And when you have every man for himself, chaos, egalitarianism, ultimately, somebody is going to climb to the top. And then what you've got is tyranny. And finally, the Arminian view of free will, as we've already seen, makes man, rather than God, ultimately sovereign over the fundamental issue of salvation. Like the proverbial nose in the camel's tent, man's supposed free will choice then begins to extend itself into other areas where God's will, as revealed by his word, is to reign supreme. Left unchecked, this untrammeled free will has led to the insanity of our modern age, a world where choice determines if an unborn child will live or die, or whether a man will be allowed to marry another man. Few people noticed it amid the hoopla surrounding the kiss between Britney Spears and Madonna at the 2003 MTV Music Video Awards. But their statement at the end of the performance revealed the true root of their rebellion. We're bored with the concept of right and wrong. In their minds, God's word is no longer the supreme arbiter of right and wrong. Neither are they fallen creatures whose minds and wills have been warped by sin. They are free to choose their own moralities, a right that Pelagianism and Arminianism ultimately makes possible. In the same eerie way, the spirit behind the infamous halftime show at Super Bowl 38 was missed amidst the furor surrounding the bearing of Janet Jackson's breast. Throughout her performance, the audience was exhorted over and over to choose, to be different, to be whatever they wanted to be. 
Once again, perverse behavior was merely a byproduct of a far more insidious idea that man is the master of his own fate and the arbiter of his own reality. Man's choice, rather than God's, is ultimately sovereign. The only antidote to the sickness of our present evil age? The gospel of the kingdom of God. The proclamation that God is dread sovereign over everything in heaven and on earth. That he is holy, a consuming fire, whose wrath will be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man that he has satisfied the demands of justice in the sufferings and death of his son on the cross, that man is completely dead in his trespasses and sins and cannot lift a finger to help himself, but that what is impossible for man is possible with God, that he and he alone can make us alive again through Christ. Understanding this, it's time that we were about our Father's business, calling men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. But wait a minute, you might ask. Why should we preach the gospel if the Synod of Dort is right and God and God alone is sovereign in election? If he chooses certain individuals to be saved and sends his son to die for them and them alone and leaves others in their fallen state, and if he guarantees that his elect will be irresistibly drawn to Christ and can never be lost, then why bother evangelizing? Well, we'll answer that question in our next and final section.